After describing the horrific attack on his fellow officers last Thursday evening, I'm thinking that Dallas Police Chief David O'Brown spoke for the entire nation when he said, we are hurting. He was eloquent in his short, clear statements, I thought. Other words are hard to find that are adequate to expressing the bewildering range of emotions to the events of the past week and weeks and months. I've been left to sitting with St. Paul's instruction, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought. But that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. I've been doing a lot of spiritual sighing. And you know, I don't want to add my voice to the raucous din surrounding the specifics of these events other than to say the obvious, that no one deserves to die because of a blue uniform or because of the color of their skin. Black lives matter. Police lives matter. Both things are true simultaneously. It would seem that we're not very good at holding simultaneous truths together. And I would add, if anyone is still arguing that we've become a post-racial nation, well, that surely can finally be put to rest. Racism is alive and well in the United States as it has been since our founding when it was formally baked into our democracy, even our beloved Constitution. Let's not forget that from the beginning this racism both demanded and provoked violence. Violence was at the core of slavery. We tend to think of slavery as some kind of a disembodied thing. But at its core was violence by its very nature. And this violence blossomed into blood-red ferocity during our Civil War when 620,000 Americans, 620,000 Americans slaughtered one another. And you know, that really wasn't all so very long ago, was it? Not really. And even then, emancipated African-American soldiers fighting for the North were paid half of what white soldiers got, lest we overly estimate the moral purity of the victors and all of their descendants down to the present moment. It's baked in. It's baked into the system. And violence is deeply embedded within our national culture. That's an aspect of the conversation around guns. They're supposed to make us safe. Earlier in the week, Philando Castile attempted to explain he had a concealed carry permit. Alas, 
to no avail when stopped for a traffic violation. His permit did not save him. His gun did not save him, and the cop's gun did not protect him. Of course, we've grown accustomed to violence, nearly addicted to it, if our entertainments are any indication. The bloodier, the better, it seems. And you know, violence is everywhere. It's not just over there, somewhere, somewhere else, where we can fight our enemies from a seemingly safe and bloodless distance. But it's here in Orlando and Charleston and San Bernardino and sometimes on our street, in our homes, in our cars and neighborhoods. And if we are honest, if we're honest, within ourselves as well, within each one of us. It's found wherever humans reside, an inextricable part of our nature. You know, interestingly, that's one of the lessons we derive from the earliest chapters of Genesis, when Cain slew his brother Abel. Right there, right there in the beginning of our sacred story, fratricide makes a grand entrance and then wending its way throughout the biblical narrative, even implicating God. Racism is a form of fat fratricide. Though we don't usually think of it this way, the famous parable Liza read for us from Luke is a story about violence and its aftermath. We've sentimentalized it. We don't think of it like that. But on a day like today, it seems pretty clear. That's how it begins, like a notation on a police beat blotter. A man was beaten and left for dead by the side of the road. No suspects are currently in custody. Listen to this synopsis of an episode of Law and Order lifted off Netflix. A body in the Hudson holds the key to judicial corruption. When an unidentified body is found in the Hudson River, detectives search for the identity of this floater, discovering her to be the missing partner in the middle of a shaky marriage. Jesus' version of a screenplay begins this way. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. And I think, wow, Jesus knows his audience. He knows the human situation, what grabs our attention, and which fears animate our anxieties. The mystery Jesus unpacks doesn't have to do with the identity of the victim or the perpetrators, nor for that matter, with their motives. His is a more closely observed analysis of behaviors addressing a deeper issue, one that strikes at the heart of every sort of violence. Now, We all know that evil and death are real and doesn't fear join them at every point. We could imagine, for instance, that the priest and Levite who first spot the man bleeding on the the side of the road and who, by virtue of their roles of leadership within the community, should know the ethical requirements of their law, are fundamentally captured by fear. You know, why get involved when the risks are so unknown? 
So one more guy gets offed. So another offender gets away with murder. The world's a violent place. The man shouldn't have been on the road to Jericho by himself anyway. It's terrible, but what's that got to do with me today? And so Jesus' story might have ended right there. But that isn't the end of the story. He imagines another sort of ending. Or perhaps we might say his surprising climax is not so much an ending as it is a beginning. Rather than succumbing to the spirit of evil and death, the Samaritan, without so much as a second thought, gives into the spirit of life. He does something. The Samaritan. He acts. And, and you know, friends, here we need to emphasize underscore how Jesus stacked the deck. The Jews considered Samaritans an abomination. They were unclean and had abandoned the so-called true practice of the true God, that the Samaritans should be the one to lend aid while the righteous leaders pass on the other side of the road, brings the point of the story into very, very sharp relief. This would not have been lost on the lawyer who set out to entrap Jesus. Yes, yes, Jesus, I'm supposed to love God and neighbor, but you know, just who is my neighbor when all is said and done? And we could imagine Jesus' answer from the perspective of the same geography today. Same geography today. If one were a Jewish Zionist, he could think of the Samaritan as a Muslim Palestinian living in Gaza. And if one were a Palestinian, she could imagine a Jewish homesteader in the West Bank. Implacable enemies, in other words. Well, as I was brooding on it this week, for the sincere seeker, the person who's reading for personal, true personal enlightenment, the parable prompts this question. What's the soft underbelly of my lesser self? Which people do I dislike, deplore, or otherwise have little use for? Who's my tribe and who isn't my tribe? Unregenerate right-wing conservatives, old-fashioned sloppy leftists, and shrouded Muslims, illegal aliens, some uncomely relative. Jesus, in this parable, invites us to consider our pernicious prejudices. We all have them. No one can run from this. Every last one of us has them. Or we might better say, they have us. And you see in our nation that they lay behind our violent tendencies. They give our violent tendencies permission to express themselves. Boy, 
This seems an especially important self-discipline today given the fractures in our common life. You know that there's an emerging, raging fear that we're being pulled apart in anger and anguish into tribal camps associating in media and networks only with our kind. Everyone else be damned and I get to say whatever the hell I want to about them. This fracturing can only be addressed by people choosing not to be so fractured, by choosing it. It requires a conscious intention, I think, because the culture is so overwhelming in this regard today. We have to choose it. We have to do something. We have to act. See, Jesus presents the Samaritan as a loving rebuke to the death-dealing forces that yank humans apart. When it comes to neighborliness, those human distinctions defined by fear and loathing dissolve in God's laboratory with the solvent labeled love, revealing a mystical human chemistry, the fundamental connection among all people, the imago dei, all having been created in God's image. And although the Good Samaritan is among the very best-known biblical stories, the radical nature of this human chemistry lesson is easily dismissed as sentimental, irrelevant to the realism of life as we know it. All well and good to have a lovely story with a sentimental ending, but that's got little to do with what I've got to do in the world as it is. But you know, friends, you look around and you recognize that that attitude simply won't do in our world as it is. A violent world, a world given over to fear and death. And it won't do for anyone with anything close to a heart for God and a longing for eternity. That's what the lawyer originally asked, right? He said, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Maybe he was expecting a lawyerly repartee, a clever theological debate. But here's the kicker. Notice that Jesus did not say the answer had anything to do with proper doctrine per se. As a matter of fact, that is exactly what the Samaritan didn't have, supposedly. Proper doctrine, proper religious practice, what the Samaritan did have was a heart for the deepest truth evidenced in his doing. For the sake of love, he acts. There is no debate. There is no hesitation. There's no conversation. The third man to walk along the road that day, the dreaded alien, simply chose to act on behalf of life. Evil and death are real, no question about that. But they don't have the final word, not for those with a heart for God. By his act of mercy, the Samaritan writes a new end to the story, you see? His action reveals that the priest and Levite, in their passivity and reluctance to respond, are actually conspiring with the violence of their day. And let's remember, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem as this story is being told, and it won't 
be a band of robbers who will strip, beat, and hang him from a cross. Instead, it will be a consortium of political, political and religious leaders, people well-versed in the ethics of their various systems of justice, so-called, who out of their own tribalistic fears will arrange for his death. You know, the lesson is clear. It's very clear. And it's very simple in its way. Which isn't to say demanding. Because it calls us to task, doesn't it? There's no tricky doctrines to uncover here. There's just the essential command to love. What does eternal life look like? Well, in this case, it looks exactly like a Samaritan reaching out to help a neighbor. It looks exactly like that. It's not pie in the sky, by and by. On his way to Jerusalem, the one who will offer his own life as an act of ultimate mercy tells a story of some others going about their business. People, you know, not unlike us going about our business who come across a desperate victim of violence, and one of them, the last one, despised by the others, responds in love for his neighbor. Who was his neighbor? Why, the anonymous bloody man on the side of the road. It could have been anyone. Everyone. Indeed, for Jesus it was. For everyone. Yes, yes, but at the end, you know, what's the point of it for us, Jesus? And he says, simply, you remember, go and do. Go, do, go, do, do, do. Do something. For God's sake. 